Hello, what is good? You're tuned in to Mango Masala on Pi Radio, the South Asian show, bringing you the latest tunes and chai. I'm in the studio, joined today by Simran, who's back after hiatus. Hi, how's it going? You doing all right? And we're also joined on live stream by the famous Chrissy Gill of Blasian Radio. Can you hear us? I can. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can. How are you doing? Good. I'm good, thank you. How are you all? Yeah, we're good, yeah. Um, for those of you that don't know who Chrissy is, she's part of the podcast Blasian Radio. So do you want to just tell us a bit about what you do as part of that and how it relates to this show? Sure, definitely. So uh, I'm Chrissy. I am a 25 year old living in Manchester at the moment. Um, I run a little podcast, as we mentioned there, called Blasian Radio. Um, essentially, I am Indian descent, so I'm the Asian of Blasian, and my friend Loretta, who I run it with, she is black. So we basically combined the two and we're now Blazing Radio. Um, essentially, it's just a little podcast that we run um, that covers, like tries to have a little bit of a light-hearted and fun side of it, but covers um, sort of cultural topics right now, so things that are in the news. And then we have like discussions about um, a load of different topics to do with like race, uh, gender, sexuality, a load of different things. Um, available on Spotify, um, Amazon, <laughs> Apple Music, etc. Yeah, you've got to put the plug in there. Yeah, have to. Yeah. Um, cool. So I thought today what we do is just get you on, Chrissy, whilst we discuss some news topics and um, events that have happened throughout the past week or the past few weeks. I understand you've got like a bit to contribute on that. Um yeah, from the few times that I've met you, I know you always have a lot to say. So I'm sure that you, you won't have any problem um, joining in the conversation. Um, yeah, just to say, we started off there with um, Bomb Diggy by Zach Knight and Jasmine Waller. And we're going to have a load more tunes throughout the episode as well. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Right. So the first news point that we're talking about today is... Um, actually relates to a topic that we discussed last week it's been going on it's been going on for a few months actually but um significant events happened last week with regards to the farmer protests going on in india at the moment so like i said we talked about this quite a bit last week so i'm not necessarily looking to go into detail as to why the farmers are protesting or what's actually happened but i think the thing that we wanted to touch on most was actually the response to said protests so Simran I think you said you'd noted like a few celebrities had actually um tweeted out in support of the farmers which was nice to see yeah so obviously I think the big notable ones are probably Greta Thunberg, Rihanna, Mina Harris, um, they'd all kind of spoke out in support of the farmers along with actually some other celebrities now I think some like basketball players and stuff so it's actually gained a lot of really good traction I think it's really got the ball rolling sure um I feel like that mic might be a bit funny. Do you want to just move over to that one? Just uh... Is that better? Say again? Is that better? Yeah, that's way better. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Do you want to just repeat what you said? I was just saying, um, quite a, a few big celebrities like Greta Thunberg and Rihanna, Mina Harris, they've all um, kind of spoken out now in support of the farmers and it's gained um, some really good traction with some other celebrities speaking out as well. And I think it's really got the ball rolling in terms of kind of elevating what's happening on a much more global level um so mm-hmm. essentially 
I think it became, it started off as like a very uh, small movement, I, I think I would say. Like it was, it was very within like the South Asian community, whereas now it's on like a much bigger platform. Um, so mm-hmm. I think it's so good that it got a lot of recognition and people are starting to recognize it as like a massive human rights issue that's going on. Um, unfortunately though, I think what's happened is that the Indian media have obviously seen that and they don't, they're not okay with it. So I think the kind of right wing parties in India are really um, coming for those celebrities now. Like You've probably seen like the effigies being burned and um, Oh, wow. Some of the tweets coming out are just like shocking yeah. about Rihanna and stuff. Oh yeah, Chrissy, you were talking about that, weren't you? About the tweets that were directed towards Rihanna. Um, I didn't actually know about this until you mentioned it. So do you mind just covering yeah. in as radio friendly terms as possible what people were saying? Yeah, definitely. It was you're right, Simran, it was crazy. So um Rihanna obviously put out this tweet saying like, why are we not talking about these? And a link to the farmers' protests and um, basically it just opened the door for a load of like misogynistic men uh, and just horrible right-wing people in India basically so their argument was like okay why are we letting outsiders talk about our country but some of the stuff they were saying was horrific so for example they were bringing up Chris Brown um, and obviously we all know about like the domestic abuse case with Rihanna and him and they were I saw tweets where they were saying like atting Chris Brown and saying like completely understand why you did that bro things like that which is just so mental and obviously so messed up um but you're right like it opened a whole kind of worms to allow um through a a bunch of like right-wing people and i guess um it yeah it was yeah it was just terrible really Mm, yeah I, i i don't know like how you can control that though like you know what i mean like it's just once because again like i'm not condoning it because obviously we all know that free speech doesn't amount to hate speech and we all know that it shouldn't be extended to that but at the same time i'm talking more about how do you stop people from going and saying those things on the internet because it's such a vast like landscape almost like it's 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 so easy for so many people if they have a certain agenda to just come at people um like quite violently in terms of not like speech really it's basically putting hate into like hate speech i mean it is hate speech literally it is quite intense um i think it was just crazy that like i've never seen from any other like um civil rights issue or anything that when a celebrity speaks out on it they get they get met with that much hate and such a like disgusting Mm. level of hate like you said the like the, the domestic abuse and like this kind of stuff that i've seen people calling rihanna like it's just been shocking i've never seen that happen before that people are just so hell bent on like suppressing these farmers that they will just do anything it takes and do you think that because the thing is i i don't know because i haven't looked um into the i didn't know these tweets existed until you mentioned it before chrissy but do you think that there is a certain level of anti-blackness that's involved in the response to rihanna because i've heard about um tweets directed towards rihanna and i'm sure there's tweets directed towards greta thunberg as well but do you know the 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 way that they're coming at rihanna do you reckon that's almost that's also a problem at play basically yeah i definitely think that could be the case there was an example where one of the guys uh, pulled a correlation between Rihanna and then the name Rihanna, which is like a a Muslim name, and um, they were there was like an anti-Islamic side there. So I definitely uh. wouldn't put it past them. And I know 
um, within the South Asian community, there has been historic cases of like anti-blackness. So I definitely would say um, it potentially could have been that. Yeah. And I think it sort of it opens a wider question on the and and this is such a wide issue but the the problem of like the views that women get in india um and the way that they are viewed by predominantly males um is yes it's it's a real big question on how they are viewed and how they think they can treat them and speak about them and discuss for example with Rihanna, her previous sexual history yeah which was yeah crazy it just shows the wider picture of I think of just the internalized misogyny in mm-hmm. India and in Indian people and just how that is the first rebuttal people go go to is like a woman and her relationships or sexuality or then even her race or other different issues like it just is so internalized and the fact that people are so quick to point these things out I think it really shows something yeah definitely and I think that brings us on to the next thing we actually wanted to talk about which was um a few weeks ago um actually is it trended on twitter hashtag when does it stop and the reason that this phrase trended on twitter was following a number of recent publicized incidents of rape in india and i should probably say um to anyone listening like we are going to be talking a bit about quite um disturbing topics around this area so if this is not your thing maybe don't listen to the next like five minutes or so just because it obviously it can be quite triggering for some people um, yeah, just to give some stats on, on stuff and like why this happened. Um, so like the, the, the hashtag when it's when does it stop happened because a 14 year old girl was raped by nine men. A 17 year old girl was raped by 44 men. And I read into the stories of this about what actually happened. And a lot of the time it would be that this these poor girls were like raped by one man. And they'd be trying to hitch a ride home or to get away from the situation. They get picked up by another driver, and then that driver would then rape them and discard them again. It's actually it's disgusting. And I looked looked into some stats, and India in twenty nineteen, India recorded an average of eighty seven rape cases daily, um, with four over four million. I think four million or four hundred thousand. I'm not sure about the figures there, but like a lot throughout the year, which was a it was actually a rise of seven percent from 2018. And although rape isn't a bailable offence in India, many accused still manage to get bail due to a lack of evidence, and they're sheltered by police, politicians, lawyers. And I think this comes into what we were talking about before, which is that patriarchal thinking is still very widespread throughout not only India but I think a lot of South Asian countries um and it's it's from a young age as well because I've seen some such disturbing videos of like little kids um who are basically saying about how yeah, yeah women have a, a part to play in rape and then you see juxtaposed with the older men who are still saying the same thing and it's like it's very clear that from a young age women are seen as still seen as second-class citizens certainly in india um yeah and it is it's just it's just sad like because the thing is as well like, i would never be I, i'm always a bit hesitant before criticizing um india or any south asian country just because i'm aware of how much um unjustified hate and um abuse is directed at people from these countries just for existing 
but in, in stuff like these like this, these are definitely times when like india needs to be held accountable and need to it needs to be questioned like why why is this being allowed to happen like why is it's, it's on the rise it shouldn't be on the rise even if it even if stats are high it shouldn't be going up you know what i mean so yeah i i agree with you i think like our 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 um point on the show isn't to berate india i think india is like such obviously like as a country such a beautiful country in terms of like landscape everything but you're right there are problems um like every country has their own problems um and one of india's biggest one is this view of women that they have and it's something that needs to be called out but we're i guess we're not here to just sit here and just basically talk rubbish about india for like the whole time but agreed with you like um i saw a stat that said that in 2019 one rape in occurred every 16 minutes in india can you imagine the whole oh. amount of this show four would have happened so yeah. it's just crazy to think about and i think one of the biggest problems is so um women are too when it happens to them they're too scared to stand uh, to to tell and um to go to the police about it because there's so much corruption that often they're in danger of doing that and that's a huge problem that's a problem that goes through india like we see with the farmers etc like there's so much corruption going through the country um that you know if you've got money you can basically buy off anyone or anything um and this is a case with um rape cases because i saw like a, a, there was a, a stat that basically a significant amount of women just do not report it in fear of either being chastised chastised by the society or not being believed or even killed mm. etc so yeah, it's, it's definitely something that needs to be addressed. I definitely. think a lot of it as well comes down to, like, honour being a part of it as well. I feel like the internalised kind of suppression of sexuality for women, especially in the South Asian community and, like, in India itself, runs really deep. So it's that kind of, when something happens, you wouldn't want to tell anyone because you'd be so scared of being, like, um, chastised or mm. berated by anybody or judged differently by your family and then having to, like, maybe pay a consequence for that because that's kind of how it's viewed there, as if... The rape was your fault you did something for it to happen and obviously everybody knows that's not really the case mm. you definitely i suppose some people listening to this as well might be thinking why are they talking about this because this is in india like what can we do like we don't live there sort of thing we don't have any control over what happens there but to that i would say like ultimately a lot of people that listen to this will still be of south asian heritage and views such as these this these these patriarchal views that extend also to also to violence like they do transcend from generation to generation and just because you don't live in india it doesn't mean that these views might not be present in some form in like some part of your family or close circle so in that sense like i think it's just be wary and be ready to call people out or call family members out who because it doesn't need to be even that oh um someone says oh yeah um she got raped and she deserved it but there's little like things that can build to actually create that 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 sort of view for example saying like oh why are you going out dressed like that are you trying to um attract male attention blah 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 and again it comes down to this idea of we shouldn't be um i i, I get it i get why you would be um worried for your um for your children for your especially for your female children and you don't want anything horrible to happen to them but you still should put more emphasis on telling your 
boys to be gracious and respectful, polite towards all women, rather than putting the effort into telling the girls, look, like, you need to you need to cover up, otherwise, like, bad stuff is going to happen to you, because otherwise we're never going to go get anywhere. Like, things are just going to stay yeah. the same. Yeah. Um, with regards to both the farm protests and um, when does it stop, Simran, I think you wanted to talk as well about how these events in India um, or like anywhere not in the UK, um, hearing about them, obviously there's a need for us to be vocal and active and do what we can in order to help the people who are being oppressed. But at the same time, all these um, events, especially, for example, um, the farmer protests obviously, obviously affect the Sikh community, which you might feel especially um, wary about, or obviously also the rape cases as a woman, you might also feel quite wary about. So it can actually be quite um, daunting and tiring to have to do all these, do all this work all the time. Like, even though obviously you're not on the ground, you're still engaging yourself in it. So how, what do you suggest for people that might feel a bit um, tired from all of this? I just wanted to kind of acknowledge it really and just say like, I understand that for everybody logging on to social media every day and seeing like 10, 20 posts about different things and the graphicness of some of these videos is just horrible. Um, you know, like it can just get really exhausting and it can really take a toll on your mental health. And I think especially um, as a Sikh, when you see the farmers protesting, there's something I think that just looks, it just hits home for you and I think because you see people that look like your grandparents your family members and you're seeing them like getting brutally attacked or they're protesting in the thousands and you just think god you don't deserve to be doing that and I think I've really felt it recently like going onto Instagram and seeing a different post and seeing someone that looks like a family member like sitting there and I'm just like wow this is insane because it really just hits home and makes it that much more real for you so I just wanted to say like with the when does it stop stuff um with the farm and protest or any other issue it may be it's okay to kind of switch off your phone sometimes and take a break from Instagram or Twitter. Um, you know, you don't have to be doing the activist stuff all the time. It's all, it's all right to kind of like take a break for your own mental health because I understand it can get very, very exhausting. And it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're not engaging with it. It doesn't mean that you're not um, supporting the cause. Everybody knows that because there's obviously, like you said, there's a difference between the ignorance and just willingly wanting to take a break for your own sake just wanted to put it out there that that's completely fine and you have to do what you have to do for your own mental health and it's acknowledged that everyone's trying really hard because I've got you know friends of all different races that have posted for the farmers protest and all these other civil rights issues that are happening across the world but it can just be really exhausting I think when sure. it's all very piled onto you all at once yeah so Chrissy yeah. have you ever felt that way in terms of being a bit overwhelmed by everything that's going on yeah i i think so so i actually it's quite interesting to say that because i had uh, a friend of mine who's indian and he posted something like all of you indians that posted about blm where are you now something along those lines um and it got me thinking and i i, I was like um we don't owe anyone anything right we don't owe anyone whether or not you agree with it and in this case like obviously we're all against like brutal um like attacks on on the Sikh farmers there um 
I don't have to be posting it daily to for me to disprove it. And I think that's like you're so right. Like sometimes it's overwhelming. Um and then sometimes like, you just need a break. It was a bit like when it was back in like May time around the George Floyd uh, thing. Instagram was so hot on it, which was amazing to see. Like everyone from every race, like completely um, joined on the same cause there. But it also got a lot. And I do know some of my friends said that, like, okay, I need to take a break from it. And it, because these sort of conversations need to happen because these things are happening out there and so like people are actually living that we we're, we're living it through an uh, an instagram and stuff people are actually living that so you know we don't owe anyone anything we've got to think about our own mental health as well and so um definitely posting about it like raising awareness is is amazing and like you said earlier carlos i think you said like what is the point in us talking about it here when we're not in india but you know it's now getting becoming more global thing like prime minister of canada you know like he jumped on it like loads of people jumped on it so um i think yeah it's, it's definitely a balance but if you're feeling like too overwhelmed remember you can Sure. I think we're going to have to move away from this point. We're going to get stuck into the Reddit scenario. So, Chrissy, do you? I think you probably have the most knowledge about what actually happened. So, do you want to try and explain to everyone, us included, as to what actually went on? Because honestly, I don't have that much of an idea. Sure, yeah, I, I just want to put out a caveat that I am not a finance expert. So apologies if I don't explain it very well. But essentially, I was like, we've got a stocks chat, me and my friends. And it was like going off last, uh, not last week, the week before. And I was like, okay, what's going on here? I'll, I'll actually take it off mute and figure out what's going on. And basically, um, so you may have seen that um there was this whole thing called GameStop and Reddit users and, and the basically Wall Street all crashed. So what happened was, so to average investors like you and I, just normal people, we can now quite easily trade um, on the stock market using loads of different apps such as like, so in America, they use a really popular one called Robinhood. And here we use like Trading212, Ameritrade, like a load of different ones. And you can just do it on your phone. So I know loads of people like my age, your age, that all um, trade. Um, but we go against or uh, you also have like the big hedge funds that also um, trade in these markets as well. So what happened was there was a store in America called GameStop. And I believe it was just like a gaming store that did, um, due to the pandemic, it lost a load of, of shops. And uh, basically its stock price was going to fall so there was a stat that said by they wouldn't make a profit until 2023 so it was a failing company basically and the power of reddit so for any of you that don't know reddit is like a how would you describe reddit it's like a, a website Social that media. has loads of different it's like questions. a thread like conversation platform yeah, it's basically like twitter but a lot more disorganized pretty much like <laughs> Yeah. So there's there's a, a Reddit page about stocks. And basically, um, these big hedge funds had done a short against GameStop. So they basically predicted the, the share price was going to go down and they were going to make millions from it. 
Uh, but the power of Reddit got loads of like institutional investors like us, like basically just kids basically that are um, have these apps to buy shares of GameStop. So and I'm not going to go too technical, but basically the hedge funds had bet that it was going to go down. But because so many people um, from this Reddit page that then sort of sparked a global thing, um, all started investing in GameStop, the price jumped up. So I think the share price went from like $18 to like 301 Um So what that resulted in was all these hedge funds that had big positions um, that, that, that it was going to go down, losing a load of money. So they lost, I think I saw a stat that said overall um, on, on the Friday. So this happened from like a, a, a Monday or a Tuesday. By the Friday, um, hedge funds were sitting on losses of around $19 billion, which is just crazy. Oh um, so then there's more to the saga. So basically then these apps by the Friday stopped letting people like us trade, trade in that. Uh, and buy stocks for GameStop and a few other ones. Um, and it was, there was like global uproar, mm. all like people from Congress in America got involved. And um, it was a huge thing because it's meant to be a free market that anyone can can get into, but it ended up again, benefiting the hedge funds. Yeah. So that's the sort of scope of it all in terms of like um, the, sort of bigger outrage was like so the main app i mentioned that americans use is robin hood and so there was like an interview with the ceo of robin hood a guy called vlad tenev and the interviewer i think was on cnn was basically just like okay tell me like why did you stop it and he just couldn't give any answers and he was making no sense and then they were like but and and there's um i'm not sure exactly the percentage but there's a hedge fund that owns like 20% 20% of Robin Hood or whatever. So it showed that there were like definitely corrupt things going on there. Mm. Um, yeah, it was just global outrage. Um, and now I'm not sure where GameStop is, but I think it's gone down again. So how do you feel about that? Do you think, so are you saying that you think it was wrong of them to wade in and put a stop to it basically? Yeah, completely, 100%. He didn't have any basis. You can only do that if they detect something illegal is happening. But the whole thing was completely legal. They were just doing it to protect themselves. And all that will happen is this guy, Vlad, or whoever senior there, will get a slap on the wrist, will get a fine of, you know, a lot of money. But in his eyes, he probably got a payout from these hedge funds. So 100%, it wasn't wasn't fair. So is it... Is it definitely completely legal for the, um, obviously, if you don't know this, that's fine, but I'm just wondering, is it completely legal for the people on Reddit to go on there and then discuss amongst themselves, like, oh, everyone go and do this? Because I know, obviously, like, again, I have a very limited understanding of stock market and all that that shazaz, but um, I've seen films and stuff on tv where basically i know you like the people that work there aren't meant to tell people stuff and then if you do tell people you can actually go to jail sort of thing like for telling people oh this is this is going to go this is going to go down so i'm just wondering is there any sort of illegal activity that's happened with regards to the reddit users collating together and saying we're all going to do this sort of thing 
from my knowledge, I don't believe anything was illegal. I think what you're talking about is like insider trading. Yeah. You know something um, before the general public would that when it's illegal. But from my knowledge, what the Reddit users did was legal. Um, it, it was it was weirdly like a revolution, like because they were also talking about like. Um, let's go for Blockbuster next and Bed Bath and Beyond and like obviously like Blockbuster like there's no stores of them anymore like they're completely done. Yeah. Um, and to see like to see for example GameStop I think they were in like the top ten um, highest valued companies with like Amazon and Tesla. Mm-hmm. It's quite a funny thing, but also like it's a revolution. You know the the little guys are now taking on the big guys, but as we saw the big guys still won as they always will. But this is one thing that I'm like a bit like, because when I first read about this, I was like, oh, this, like you said, this is actually great. And like, finally, these people at the top are getting a taste of their own medicine. And also, of course, when they did wade in and put a stop to it, I was also like, this is li- this is just exactly what was going to happen. Like, obviously, the people at the top were going to actually get their finger out and put a stop to it when it starts affecting them. But... um. I don't know, like, can we really call it a revolution? Like, because are we sure that these Reddit users that were doing it are actually, like, the people? Because I saw one thing about someone who had put 53k on GameStop and had become, um, he'd got, like, 11 million back or something. I'm just like, if you can afford to put 53k on, surely you're not, like, that bad off in the first place. You know what I mean? So, like, I don't know, like... Yeah, I I think, um... You're right. We, we obviously can't verify everyone that went in and their reasons, but um, the thing is, 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 isn't trading has always been very inaccessible to people that weren't within it. And now, what's happened in 2021 and 2020 in the last few years is anyone can get into it. Anyone, like I've got a whole group of friends. None of us really did finance, and and still, like all of them are um, actively trading in it, discussing etc. And so. Um, I think that's a rare case that you mentioned. I know people, I can name a handful of people I know that put in like somewhere between like 500 to a thousand pounds, maybe a bit less actually, um, or across all their portfolio. That's how much they've got in. So I don't know how much they put into actually GameStop, but I know um, a lot of people like our age that are doing it now. So um, yeah, it's difficult to test the validity of everyone that was doing it, but I definitely think it is a revolution, 100%, because never before have we had, like, your average Joe being able to come up against, like, the billion-dollar hedge yeah. fund. So I, I suppose, like, what do we think this actually says about trading in general or general finances, given that, like you say, when the average Joe is able to actually compete, they just get immediately shut down. Like, was there any logical reasoning for them being shut down? Like, were they going to basically cause another economic crash or something? Or or was it just that the people at the top just didn't like that they were losing all their yachts and stuff? Uh, I think it was a bit of both. I think it could have potentially caused a crash. I think it did cause a bit of a crash. But also, yeah, it, it was mainly the people at the top were getting... Uh, badly hit by it so like one I remember one example is like there's a hedge fund called Melvin Capital which is a 13 billion dollar AUM hedge fund mm-hmm. um, and they basically put in a load of money from short selling GameStop and they I think they they declared bankruptcy or they lost so much that they 
um, they needed help, but their other hedge fund buddies bailed them out and lent them a significant amount of money. So um, I think it, I don't know how we can stop that happening again, but I think maybe more regulation. I found out like Robinhood, for example, which was the main app that most people were using it off, is not like FINRA regulated. Um, so it, yeah, there's, there's ways we can avoid this, but essentially what Robinhood did and the other apps wasn't legal, I don't believe, mm. allegedly. And um, <laughs> even the like the UK ones as well. So I remember, because I don't do it, I don't trade um, in stocks yet, but I tried to sign up on Thursday when it was all happening and it, they wouldn't let me. And loads oh. of my friends weren't allowed even into the app, let alone to buy that stock. So... Mm. I don't know. It's a it's a weird one. I don't know his side. There's a, there's arguments for both sides, but um, essentially what they did and the fact that they weren't allowing people access to a free market wasn't fair or legal. Sure. You know, one thing that was funny though is I saw on Twitter um, this like Robin Hood account, and they'd gained like hundreds of thousands of followers or something. And they literally did this tweet that's gone viral, which is basically that, um, just to let people know, you're following the official Robin Hood Society in Nottingham, not the GameStop thing. <laughs> so this random not um, Robin Hood Society in Nottingham has got like hundreds of, of thousands of followers from this like a whole um, thing that's gone on. So at least that's Bye. one funny thing that's happened. Right, so what we're going to do now is play a few more tracks and when we come back we're going to get talking about the Channel 4 series, It's a Sin. Um, yeah, before we do that, Simran, I know um, that wasn't really your type of thing throughout the whole thing. Do you have any comments on like the whole Reddit incident? I just think it was kind of just the power of a meme, you know, how it just kind of started off as like a little inside a joke thing with people on reddit it just shows the power of people in the internet can really take down these big corporations which is like kind of shocking to see but then like um chrissy said obviously the big guy always wins yeah well hopefully in the future maybe that might change now we're going to get talking into um a show that everyone seems to be talking about at the moment um i think it was channel four's one of their top highest viewed um box not box sets but you know what i mean when they release it all at once like it's one of the most viewed series in that sense um it's called it's a sin and it basically follows the lives of five young adults who live in london throughout the 80s at the height of the hiv um aids um pandemic basically because that's what it was it was basically a pandemic um and Yes, Chrissy, do you want to maybe give us, like, without too many spoilers, just tell us a bit about the basic premise of the um, series, basically? Sure. Yeah, definitely. I think um, we decided to talk about this because I'd noticed you'd been liking all their stuff on Instagram, and mm. so had I. Um, yes, It's a Sim was a very, very good show. I've actually watched it twice. Um, it's like a five-part episode um, on Channel 4. And as Carlos said, it basically follows the lives of these four young adults moving to London and they're all exploring their sexuality. Um, 
and it sort of ties in very nicely in terms of like um it's it's got like an undertone of like the whole fun of london and all of that but then a really serious undertone of like hiv and aids and how that was becoming more and more prevalent and it was interesting it's a time when they didn't actually know what it was at the start mm. um and it it actually reminds me a little bit and I'm not going to give any spoilers away but it reminds me quite similarly of like what's going on this year with like COVID like a new virus comes about no one really understands what it's about mm. um, there's loads of theories if it's this if it's that and um, the show is very very well done in terms of like it's a very sad topic and they could have made it completely you know really down and, and really like drew but instead they gave it a really like colourful uh, over time with like the music and the actual scenes and stuff so um yeah it's a, a very very good show it really really touched me because i didn't i actually didn't know a lot about it and especially like not being even born in those times i didn't even realized like this sort of thing happened like, yeah. that much yeah no and i think obviously it wasn't that long ago like the 80s like like we make jokes about that oh yeah people in the 80s are old and that but it actually wasn't like that long ago and um i think the fact that it's a a bit of history very important history that's kind of just not really covered at all or not really talked about at all and i think also it's just it was very sad watching it and i think i i think i i knew like Obviously, I'm not claiming to know exactly what it would have been like, but I think I, I had like an idea of like what it must have been like. But actually watching it, and I think also watching a series that was based in London during the AIDS um, crisis, rather than America, for example, like the musical Rent. Um, I've watched that like the, the film version a number of times, and for people that don't know, that's set in America during the same time at the height of the AIDS pandemic, and. Um, there's, there's lots more surrounding that with regards to what happened in America, but no one really talks about what it was like actually living in the UK when this hit. And it was really interesting, like, seeing... Because the, the series is, like I say, it's only five episodes, but it basically covers the entirety of the 80s and early 90s, pretty much. And it was just interesting seeing the different stages. For example, at the beginning... Um, no one really knows what it is no one really it's just this disease that seems to be particularly affecting um gay men and it's i think it's interesting and i don't think this is giving any spoilers because i think this is actually a trailer they've released but one of the main characters richie actually in this trailer which is actually part of the episode as well he's basically talking about how aids is or this disease is just it's a myth and that it was just created um in order for basically people to shun um, people who are gay even further because at that time like it like i said it wasn't that long ago but it pretty homophobic like times and you see that in the series and it's really sad because you see how much that actually contributes towards people who come into contact with hiv then decide to keep it to themselves and it's really similar to what we're talking about before actually with regards to these um women in india that might have been raped and feel scared of coming forward um because of how they'll be treated it's the same with these gay men in the um 
80s or anyone that had it really was scared of coming forward because they thought oh this is a disease that's associated with gay men and they're gonna know if i've got this then they'll know that i have been having sexual relations with gay men and i don't want anyone to know that because of how much stigma there was behind that yeah it was really it's like you say it's it was it's a really good watch there's some really funny moments there's some really heartwarming moments but there's also a lot of heartbreak in it and it's it's a bit hard to watch in times but i think the thing that makes it so much so much more poignant as well is the fact that if anyone's listening to this that thinks they might have come into contact with hiv or that they um are worried about getting it or if say for example you like have heard this and that about it but don't necessarily know what exactly it is there's so much information out there about it especially in light of this new series coming out i think people are talking about it a lot more but also it's important to emphasize that if you do have hiv or if you do get hiv you can still live a long and healthy life now it's not a death sentence um chrissy did you like um know exactly like what it is that people yeah so i i find it really interesting because one of my uh best friends is gay and so i've got um i got a lot of information from him um like last few years so i got a lot more equipped on like understanding it all than i probably had before knowing him i was probably very ignorant um as i think a lot of people are but one thing that show didn't really cover and i think that is really important to know is you're right like you can have hiv or aids now and live very very long lives basically same expectancy now there's there's like basically there's two types of drugs as well one called prep and one called pep prep is basically like you take it daily um if you think potentially you might be getting exposed i.e if you're having like intercourse unprotected or whatever um and then there's pep so if you've met someone and, and you think you've been exposed to it in terms of obviously you've had intercourse or whatever you can take pep um for like a month after it and that will um stop it transferring to you um another thing to say is like a huge amount of um, so I think it's 87% of people in the UK right now with HIV are virally suppressed. And what that basically means is, in terms of science, it basically means that they have less than 200 copies of HIV per milliliter of blood. But what that basically means is they take medication after they've been diagnosed for I think it's around six months and um, the virus then lies dormant and they have to take these drugs every day, but it's un- undetectable. So there is literally no risk of you transmitting it to an HIV negative partner. And that is huge. Like in mm. it, 30 years ago, HIV death sentence, really, really sad. If you knew it, and, and I can't even imagine living knowing that. Whereas now um, with science and medication, it's so easily manageable that it's, um, yeah, it's, it's like, it's obviously it's a worry and they say like, if you catch it in the late stages, that's when it can be deadly. But mm. if you get it early, you can live a very normal life with it. And I feel like the show didn't highlight that, and it should have, because yeah. I found a stat, just one last thing is I found a stat that awareness in the UK, only 45% of the UK population know HIV is and isn't transmittable. So basically a lot of people, I think, assume. And, and kind of like, why would you know if you weren't really in that life and and you didn't know um you would assume 
like it's probably transmittable or it's the death sentence or whatever, but actually um, it's very, very manageable. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely good that it, it's definitely important that people understand that. And just um, coming off what you were saying about like what people might believe or like 45% don't, is it 45% don't know that it is both transmissible and they, non-transmissible? They do know. 45% know. know that. So 55% don't know, okay. basically. Yeah, because I was just wondering, um, Simran, obviously as, um, again, this isn't me trying to be like, oh yeah, the younger amongst us, but obviously you're a few years younger than both of us. And also as someone who comes from a South Asian background, um, what was your knowledge or what is your knowledge of hiv and aids like prior to this like is there anything or have is and if you do know anything is that what you've like sought out yourself rather than actually being educated on it in school so yeah i feel like my knowledge of it prior to researching this show it's a sin um was extremely limited i think i did know that it was non-transmissible with the right medication um and also i did a lot of research before um about a lot of the stigma attached to it and how people were really shamed to come out in the 80s about it and the fact that it was like um labeled this disease that only like um gay people could get and there was a lot of like misunderstanding around the whole thing Mm. um that's kind of what i knew about that was like pretty much the extent of my knowledge i think a lot of it does reflect on the state of like sex education in schools that Mm. what you do get taught is extremely limited they teach you really the bare bones of it all if that sometimes um and i feel like with proper education in the school system would lead to a lot better awareness of it and the actual facts around it because i feel like hiv and aids is one of those things where people do just believe things that aren't the truth like the fact that it's only only gay people can get it when the you know the truth is that anyone regardless of your gender or sexuality age anything any anyone's vulnerable to it um and stuff so i think it reflects a lot more on the kind of the way the curriculum set up because mm. with the right education people would definitely know the facts definitely i was gonna ask what did both of you two think about because again this is pre-corona times which seems like a lifetime ago there's obviously that's that primary school in birmingham where a high proportion of um muslim families weren't very happy because their kids were basically being taught about in homosexual relationships in terms of and this wasn't um, sex ed i don't think i think this was literally just the idea of love between a man and a man or a woman and a woman being a thing being like something something that's possible um and i think they were very unhappy about the fact that this was being taught to their kids um so much that there's been like protests and um taking their kids out of school that sort of thing um so what are your thoughts on that do you think that that was like it's a bit too young for people to be told about that but then also obviously we literally have heterosexuality shoved down our throats from like age zero so like can you really argue that you know what i mean so like, what are your thoughts on that um i feel like education just knowing people just people knowing the facts and think them the stuff that like you know homosexuality does exist and this is how it works that's completely harmless and if anything that's doing good not bad and it's just getting you know the facts out there for young kids to learn which is like so important um and the fact that people would like protest against that kind of just emphasizes i think the homophobia that's in our community a lot more Mm. that it's that's it's so 
widely unaccepted and that people would go as far to like pull their kids out of school or threaten to pull their kids out of school just because they've been taught that homo- homosexual relationships exist which obviously is like fundamentally wrong and i think it just does the job of further further perpetuating the kind of homophobia that we have in our community and that obviously doesn't bode well and i think it would just push young south asian homosexual people further into the closet like it would just prevent them from wanting to come up prevent them from being themselves which obviously has like really negative effects on their mental health and it can just be like a really horrible experience for those people and it just further stigmatizes them and just puts them back into a position where they feel like they might not be accepted by not even just society but their own families Mm. um chrissy um what do you think about do you think that there is um homophobia um it might be subtle do you think there's any that exists within the south asian community particularly like in the uk do you think that's a thing or do you think that we've moved past that or like what what's your thoughts on that yeah so i think historically um south asians um and just generally probably the bame community have always been ingrained in the society has been quite homophobic so i know from um like some of my best friends that are gay and i've had conversations with them and i've asked them like who are them who 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 have been the most horrible to you ever and they always say they always say um the asians and the black community but what i will say is i think it is changing in terms of like we're all young right our parents are obviously like the older generation and we've got our grandparents and as the generations grow up um we're becoming a lot more like open to it and a lot more like um i guess like not homophobic so like not open to it but essentially like you know it's just the norm like if someone's gay they're gay if someone's not gay they're not gay mm-hmm. like that sort of thing um whereas i think like in the older generations they're still it, it wasn't the done thing right like it's still like there's they're remembering their upbringing and how like there wasn't many gay people etc and it wasn't accepted whereas like for us now like if one of our friends i would assume this is the case but if one of our friends basically told us they were gay we just we'd be like okay cool yeah like that's cool yeah. you're, you're still the same person you were yeah. um it's just a preference so um I think it is changing, but yes, historically, I think the South Asian community can have and have been um, very cruel to people that were homosexual. Yeah, I think the thing that's so sad about that is as well is that a lot of in in in, in when you talk about historically, if you if you're going to say historically, if we go way back to before britain colonized a lot of these countries such as india and a lot of african countries if you go way back in a lot of african countries and um, asian countries homosexuality was actually like or gender fluidity was actually a thing and it was like it was just accepted and it was just a way of living it was actually when britain went over and colonized these countries in a lot of cases that they brought over with them that homophobia which then transcended into society there which unfortunately seems to have for some reason stuck more strongly with the BAME communities than it does with um white communities which is interesting because because I I get what you're saying because I I do think if I think about someone who's going to be more um lenient towards the idea of homosexuality not that we should have to even say that but if we are going to say that um I would think that it would be 
a white community rather than a BAME community. But yeah, it's just sad. Like people that if, if you're BAME and you have this like homophobia subtle or not embedded within you just think about the fact of like where that's actually come from because if you go way yeah. back like actually like like we didn't have that also, you know what i mean just to add to that it's like we are all trying to fight the plight for racism and trying to stop racism in our own cultures and in the uk you know we're all trying to fight to have like a uh an equal world but apparently like I, some people think it doesn't apply to gay people and they just think that's crazy like how can you want equality when it comes to our skin color but you don't want equality when it comes to our sexuality yeah literally i think we're gonna have to end it on that point if that's all right so chrissy thank you so much for joining us today it's been a pleasure having you on the show and for those of you that don't know chrissy is actually headed off to america soon for work so good luck with that and hopefully either when you're back or even when you're in america we can get you on the show in the future as well and just have a bit of a catch up on another yeah. discussion again that would be amazing thank you and thank you for having me i've had a great time no worries got any plans for the rest of the day uh it's lockdown isn't it <laughs> Correct this is the highlight of my week oh <laughs> i'm glad to hear that we're now going to hear from one of our team members, Sakshi, who's managed to get in touch with the jazz musician based in London, Sarathi Kowa. He um, is so talented. Um, if you go and listen to his music, you'll know exactly what I mean. Um, but yeah, I'll let Sakshi take it from here. And yeah, stay tuned. Hey, Sakshi, how's it going? Not bad. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah. How is uh, 2021 treating you so far? So far, so good, you know. I'm trying to stay positive. Like, I think it's too early to cancel 2021. Um, I'm waiting, you know, I'm waiting, basically. I haven't made up my mind yet. But yes, yeah, so far, so good. And is it a new year, new you or new year, better you? I think better me, hopefully. Uh, I mean, it's not hard to be better than last year, so like, <laughs> I feel like it's going to be easy. But um, no, lots, lots of good things to look forward to. Hopefully the return of life as we knew it um, at some point. And uh, no, I'm, I'm excited. Nice. Okay, cool. So I wanted to talk about, obviously, your music and your music journey. Um, so as, as far as I understand it, you started your journey in England when you were 22. So you came here to study, right? That's and, correct. And then I'm guessing you fell in love with London and didn't want to go back. Um, so yeah, how did it, so what did you, you went to SOAS, I know that. And uh, So how did you go about um, from there going into music? Yeah, so I first came to London uh, to study music when I was, like you say, 22, 23 um, in 2009. And I was straight out of um, university in India in uh, Pune, mm -hmm. uh, which is close to Mumbai. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who don't know, and um, I basically wanted to study music by that point. You know, I'd, uh, I, I'd, I'd made it my prime focus. I wanted to spend years at a music school and really try and perfect my craft. And so here I was in London and I did two years of sort of uh, contemporary music school. Uh, which was a combination of learning various styles of music from rock to jazz to R&B to hip hop, all kinds of stuff. And um, after that, 
I decided to do a master's at SOAS. Um, and the, my master's was, um, I, for the first time, looking at uh, my ability as a tabla player and as a drum kit player. Because up until that point, um, I really only studied tabla as like an Indian classical instrument and drums as this kind of Western instrument. And I hadn't really thought about actively anyway, um, putting the two together. Right, right. And so for the first time, I really uh, sat down and, and experimented with those ideas and this exchange of vocabulary between the two drums and what it could mean for me as an individual performer, but also with the kind of music that I wanted to create, right. like merging these two identities that were both very central to who I was, you know, like growing up listening to lots of music from quote unquote the West, you know, from the sure. UK and the US, a lot of rock and roll and, and rock music and electronic music. Mm-hmm. And then also having this background of playing Indian classical music because my family uh, were always very supportive of the idea of me playing the tabla. Right. So I think by the age of 25, 26 is when I really started thinking about, you know, what is it that I want to do as a musician and what kind of music do I want to make and, you know, uh, more cheesily, like, what's my sound? You know, what is yeah. it that I have to say? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's how I kind of came about uh, the kind of music that I was making back then. I, I love playing with other people, you know, yeah. uh, primarily uh, more than actually making music myself. I actually enjoy the, uh, the, the uh, I mean, the exercise of being in a room with other people and just making music more than anything else. In terms of, like navigating your music like as you said you know there are very few people especially first generation south asian people making music uh, and you might be one of the only people that, that that are expressing these ideas through music so do you find that this space has been really isolating and do you find it sort of difficult to navigate it being sort of expressing your own experience but then you also have this burden of representation and and what that first generation South Asian experience looks like. Yeah I think at first it can feel really um, you can feel really alone because like you said there aren't that many people who look like you or sound like you or talk like you in the music industry so there aren't that many role models you know there aren't that many people as a young and up up and coming musician that you look at and be like yeah i that's like a career trajectory that i can kind of follow Mm -hmm. so i kind of take that as a positive and a negative because the positive of that is the fact that i can just make my own rules Mm -hmm. or i can set my own goals and my own ambitions and kind of not be tied down by what um anybody before me has come and done because it's like, yeah, I'm doing it and it is what it is. Uh, and equally the negative, like I said, is just that you don't have any uh, context to what you, what is possible and what isn't, you know, um, in terms of representation, I've always kind of, well, I've kind of initially made the mistake of thinking that I'm representing uh, a larger culture. Like I'm representing South Asians in the UK or I'm representing like first generational migrants in the UK. Well, and I think it's very important not to fall into that trap, I've realized. Like the bottom line of all this is you can only really represent yourself. Like forget about culture, forget about where you come from. Like on a good day, I can represent myself well. There's times when I'm putting out music, which I don't even think is maybe representative of how I'm feeling 
on you know most days who knows mm-hmm. and i think if you take on that burden of feeling like you need to represent more than yourself mm-hmm. it can be very daunting and it's basically impossible because the whole idea is that people are different of course and that's the idea that we're trying to drive home with the kind of music we're making anyway yeah. so then if you're saying people are different and you know south asians aren't all the same yeah but then at the same time you're saying oh i'm going to represent south asians that yeah. doesn't make any sense yeah because you've just said that they're all different yeah. so for me i realize that i have to just represent myself right and what the way people talk about you and the narratives they weave around you will always be because you're the only person in the in in the group or in the larger you know industry as south asian then they'll be like yeah of course you know this person is paving the way for whatever or like making south asian music cool or whatever right. and you just kind of got to ignore it at some right. level right but and hope that other people younger musicians might see what you're doing and just be inspired by it just by virtue of you being existing in this space how have you found getting into the industry and kind of really making a go of it in the in the financial sense of things and 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 sticking with it during times like these yeah look i'm not going to lie it's not easy yeah uh when you talk about who you know and you know it's more about who you know rather than you know being in the industry i think i came in without knowing anyone right like i didn't know anyone when i came to the uk i literally had one friend who yeah. i knew from back at back at home so i knew nobody in the industry and still you know i managed to somehow carve a career out of it so i wouldn't you know discourage people from giving it a shot ever hmm. just know that it's always going to be super competitive and super difficult and there's always going to be times when you feel like giving up and you know london can be or the uk can be you know quite a difficult place to do uh music i mean it, music's not easy to do anywhere really but if you have the burden of rent and the burden of you know maybe your parents maybe your own expectations right. then you know maybe it's it's not for everyone you know right. but at the same time i feel like it is such a rewarding experience to be doing what i'm doing mm-hmm. that i wouldn't trade it for anything else in the world right. so i think something that's actually really important to remember and is something that i also suffered from not knowing is that one often if you're if you're south asian or if you're any sort of minority community coming into an industry where you feel like there aren't that many people who look and sound like you mm-hmm. you can feel like there's only room for one of you you right. start getting very competitive with other south asians in the room right. you're like oh hang on like i think it's going to be either me or him or her because like i don't think there's room for the both of us yeah. and that's something that you need to really get over very quickly because it's absolutely false yeah. you know the industry that you want to inherit and want to shape by being in it has to has to have space for everyone are you the a sort of a typical musician in the sense that like during this time obviously where you've got a bit of a pause and you're going through things and so you just put that energy into being creative and creating music so even if you don't have work at the moment like you're creating stuff still and you know always have a way to channel that mm, i no actually i feel like i've over the last year gone through a lot of like periods of not feeling creative at all right. um i think for anyone who's lived through this pandemic you know 
artists like you say are a mirror to the world or a reflection of society and all that stuff so it's like if the society is in absolute chaos and there's a pandemic how can anyone feel creative you know how can anyone really be making music that's inspiring like it's difficult like i totally get why you know it's it's a hard time and i suffered from that and i feel like it took me a long time to find a place where i was even happy enough to make music and also see a relevance in music you know i would often question myself is like well the world is you know burning and here i am worried about some music album does it even matter like what am i doing like shouldn't i be i don't know like look at all the frontline workers they're doing real incredible tangible work and right. what am i doing yeah. and so you ask yourself those questions a lot and you realize how important over time like art and music is because people rely on it to survive okay. right and you can often forget that and so that's something that i keep reminding myself of and that you know music is not just entertainment it's so much more to people yeah. it's it's therapy it's it's ways of you know communicating it's it's so all the intangibles stuff that you can't really talk about music's there for you uh, and art art in general is there for you so i kind of think of it that way and that's given me a bit more like impetus to keep going and stay creative yeah. but you know i also very aware of the fact that you can't be too hard on yourself at at this time so in terms of 2020 um do you want to share with us what you've been up to what you've got lined up i know i i saw that turner 20 song and i loved the video by the way because it was so cute it was so like homegrown quarantine oh, yeah. video um yeah i loved the video so talk yeah that was just for a laugh really so like i feel like zia brings out the worst and like best in me like he's a hilarious guy zia ahmed uh-huh. uh and we were like talking about the the video was in response to actually a review of more arriving mm-hmm. uh which kind of said that you know we were overdoing the whole racism thing <laughs> and it was kind of saying like oh um racism isn't that bad is it really cuz like turner uh JMW Turner the impressionist painter he's on the new 20 pound note so like look we're all like we're progressing and he was right. like an abolitionist or whatever and so my kind of our reaction to that was like oh yeah turner's on the 20 so like everything's okay now like racism has ended you know and it's this kind of sarcastic look at like what tokenism can do and sure. what you know uh, and so yeah it was totally homemade um it was like the first kind of lockdown dancing i was impressed Not dancing yeah <laughs> I was surprised I myself. You, I did not know you could dance. I was like, well, I can't. Oh, this is a surprise. <laughs> I didn't I was it was terrible. It was hilarious. I really enjoyed making it and um it was yeah, it was just a lot of fun honestly. And um yeah. <laughs> People, yeah, check it out. It's online. It's 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 there turn on the 20. Yeah. And um then I we did I released uh, an EP of songs that like um was supposed to make it on to more arriving but then actually i just did, we ran out of space on the lp so that was called otherland and right. uh, it's got a couple of new songs and two remixes mm-hmm. uh and then later in november i put out an album that we recorded back in july of 2019 which was uh with my other band sort of my other project which is the upaj collective right. and that was a directed disc uh, lp which meant that we went into the studio and while we were recording the lp was being cut like live mm-hmm. so literally you finish the recording session and you go into the like the sound room where the engineer sits and he just gives you the lp right. and say here you go that's done 
So it was quite a daunting, like scary thing to do because obviously whatever you do in that room is now on an LP. There's no editing. There's no post-production. It's right. just what it is. Right. Uh, but it was an incredible experience and we kind of took it uh, that way, you know. Um, and so, yeah, that was my 2020 in terms of releases. But also I've kind of been uh, at home working on a new album of music that will hopefully come out this year. Uh, so my kind of third studio album. Right. And it's uh, something that's going to be based in, it's quite a conceptual album this time. It's um, based in the future. So I've been writing like pen on paper, a lot of like, uh, like a narrative story. Um, And I've been writing recipes and drawing maps. And it's like this kind of fantasy future from a South Asian perspective. Um, And kind of what uh, I'd imagine I'd like the world to look like, you know, in the future at some point where maybe words like refugee and like diaspora and things like that don't exist anymore because movement of people is just the norm and people have accepted that, for example. Um, Also just going beyond the South Asian-ness because something that I end up always having to talk about is race and South Asian-ness and identity and representation and all that's cool because, you know, it's it's important. But often you never actually get asked like, what are your interests? Right. Like, what are your hobbies? Like, what do you like doing apart from talking about race and representation? <laughs> you know? And yeah. it's like, yeah, like, you know, part of the problem is that circular way of thinking is that because you're a minority, you're fighting so hard to be seen as anyone being. else, yeah. a human being, exactly, that you end up not talking about what human beings talk about. Like, no one's asked me whether I, I don't know, like gardening or like whether <laughs> I like playing sports, anything, you know, because, and, Sure. In a way, that's what's more important. And that's how we're going to relate to people, you know, ultimately. So it's kind of, yeah, an album that's based definitely in, in you know, in the future, but also in what I believe the world should kind of look like. So it's a positive kind of album, I think. Yeah, because normally when you think about um, the future, it's normally a dystopian idea. And, you know, yeah. you get Charlie Brooker vibes. For sure. <laughs> Black Mirror. Well, exactly. And I think right now the challenge is to, like, I'm thinking about positivity as resistance, you know, because, yeah. look, making a dystopic album right now is just too easy. Right. Like, literally, you're just living in one. Like, you just right. have to, like, you know, it's so, in a way, the harder thing right now to be is to, you know, think positively. And I think, like, a lot of mainstream media and people around you and social media would have you believe that dystopia is the new norm Mm. Um, and I think it's really important to fight that idea and to be able to actively as artists at least like imagine worlds that are different to the one that we are going to inherit you know and that's how kind of change could come. So obviously um, I know you've performed in some cool venues around London Um, so I wanted to ask is there some do you have a hilarious kind of interesting story about playing in a venue um, and just kind of looking back and thinking this this experience really surprised me? I played, um, I, I, again, I, this might not be my best story, but you put oh. me on the spot. So it's cool. It's Sorry. cool. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, it's, uh, I played at the Royal Opera House mm-hmm. and me and a friend of mine, a sitar player called Freni Pavri, mm-hmm. uh, shout out to Freni. Uh, we, uh, was we got a call like a day before and we were asked if we wanted to open for the Dalai Lama. 
So we were both like, oh my God, it sounds amazing. Like, yeah. yes, please. And um, so we did this gig at the Royal Opera House before one of his talks, basically. Right. And uh, we were on stage. <laughs> it was the most like weird gig we've ever done. So it's like 15 minutes of playing. Sure. And uh, they refused to pay us because they said it's a charity event. They said it's not paid. But we were like, you know what, we'll do it anyway because it's the Dalai Lama and, you know, it sounds cool. And then as soon as we got on stage, and we were sitting on this like really beautiful like cashmere like carpet and um i spilled some of my like talcum powder because i use talcum powder with my tabla right, um right. when my hands get very sweaty so you kind of like try to dry your hands off right i think like i spilled some powder on the carpet and like the stage manager whoever owned the carpet was so like it was raging and she came out she's like do you know how expensive this carpet is it's oh, like no. three thousand pounds and i'm like mate i'm not getting paid here i'm sitting <laughs> on a three thousand pound carpet so i was like you know what this is this is messed up uh, but it was it was a weird gig and uh we actually got to sort of meet the dalai lama um he in passing He's really cute, man. Yeah, he's really cute. He's like, I mean, he seems really cute. But the whole place was locked down. Like there was security everywhere. Um, so it was a, it was a, it's probably not the funniest, but it was one of the most random, like weird gigs I've done. Yes. So you can find the whole interview by Sakshi with Sarafikowo on YouTube later this evening. So if you head over to YouTube, type in Mango Masala Radio, you should find our channel. And you'll also find it on our Instagram at Mango Masala Radio on Twitter at Mango Masala MCR. Um, yeah, if you search those socials in either um, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you should be able to find us. Give us a like, a follow, all that stuff. And yeah, we will see you next week. Thanks a lot for tuning in.